Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at First, first Listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Today on Work in Progress, I am honored to share a conversation with a true spiritual warrior. She is wildly inspiring a model of resilience, and a deep well of wisdom, Dr. Edith Eager. Dr. Eager is a highly sought-after psychologist, author, and keynote speaker who survived the Holocaust as a teenage girl and went on to thrive despite the trauma that she endured. Edie, as her friends affectionately call her, obtained her doctorate in psychology and learned to use her imprisonment at Auschwitz as a powerful analogy for the prisons that so many of us create in our own minds. Her mission is now to inspire others to discard their limitations and find renewal and freedom within themselves. After becoming a New York Times bestselling author with her memoir, The Choice, Dr. Eager wrote a hands-on guide to overcoming your trauma that just came out this past fall called The Gift, 12 Lessons to Save Your Life. Somehow between her busy clinical practice in La Jolla and her many speaking engagements, this energetic 93-year-old made time to sit down for a chat with me. In my conversation with Dr. Eager, we discussed the power of thought, how the most obnoxious person can be your very best teacher, why the question, how are you doing, is a stupid question, and how love is what you do rather than what you say. Dr. Eager also shares her harrowing accounts of arriving at Auschwitz, being forced to dance for Joseph Mengele, and how she found the spirit to survive it all within her own mind. Dr. Eager is truly one of the wisest people I have ever had the pleasure of sharing an audience with. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Dr. Eady, I'm so 
fascinated by by your story. I think you found a philosophy. You you found your way to this kind of hopeful sense of being through one of the worst periods in human history, seeing some of the worst of what humans can do to each other. And the the decades that you've lived through have been so full of trauma and violence and also movements and possibility. I mean, you've seen the most incredible periods of our modern human history. And and I'm very curious for, for the listeners who don't know your story, if we can kind of go back to the beginning. I have this beautiful photograph of your family in 1928, um, you and your two sisters, your mother and father. And I wonder if you can tell me a bit about your early childhood. I, I know that you were born in what we would now consider Slovakia. Yes, I was born in Czechoslovakia. Um, my city was part of Czechoslovakia from 1918 until 1938. Um, before that was the Austro-Hungarian monarchy. So my mother tongue is Hungarian. I was uh, born as the last, the third girl in my yes. family. And uh, I was blindfolded when they took me for a walk because I became cross-eyed when I was three. So my my sister sang songs about me. I'm so ugly and puny and um, never find a husband. And today I tell you, especially in schools, don't allow anybody to define who you are because, you know, you, you were, you know, God planted that seed and, and, and you want to hopefully nurture yourself and find your own truth. And... Uh, my mother also looked at me and said very seriously, I'm glad that you have brains because you have no looks. So today oh, I, no. so today you talk about how, you know, I have come where I am now and turning excitement, uh, mm-hmm. turning anxiety into excitement. And this is what the gift is all about, that even in mm-hmm. hell... Auschwitz was hell. I was able to realize that I still can move beyond the body and the mind into the spiritual dimension. And believe me, during the day, I didn't know from one minute to the next whether I'm going to the gas chamber or not. But you know what? The nighttime, I was dreaming and I was in the opera house and I was at the Olympics and my nighttime was absolutely keeping me moving that this is just temporary. Mm. Yes, I am. Yes, I can. Yes, I will. That I never, ever allowed, allowed the enemy to murder my spirit. So that's what I bring you today. Um, and uh, my daughter calls it... Uh, Edeism, one of them is, are you evolving or are you revolving? And I think I come in to ask you, when did your childhood end? Because many of us give up 
our true self to fit the family dynamics, mm-hmm. you know? So mm-hmm. firstborn children are the responsible one. Uh, the middle children are usually the peacemakers. And um, do you, I, don't, I don't know if you're a youngest child, but the youngest child is called uh, a very... Charming manipulator. Charming manipulator. <laughs> Charming manipulator. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually the only. So there you go. If you marry one, you may have power struggle because you have two bosses. <laughs> you fight to be right. Is that true? Are you a right fighter? I think so. I think for me, people often ask me why when, you know, my my forward-facing career is on screen, people will say, well, why why do you fight so hard for justice issues and and politics and democracy and 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 so on and for me it's because witnessing injustice feels wrong so the the need to fight for what's right for me really happens for the world and i think because as a young kid you know similarly to um i imagine what the experience has been for for your grandson who's our tech advisor today Growing up in our generation, we we have family. We have, you know, friends who have family like you, Dr. Edie, who have survived mass atrocity. And we're we're not so far from it that we don't think it could have happened or or that we don't understand the depth of it. And, and so for me, from a very young age, you know, half of my family is Jewish and my family is all immigrants. And I was privileged enough to be exposed to so many people's cultures and so many people's humanity and so many, so many cultures, beauty. And so this idea that we could harm each other, that we could see each other as the enemy always felt wrong to me. I just want to tell you that the more you suffer, the stronger you become inside. Mm-hmm. You don't let mm-hmm. other people get to you so easily. You see, no one can make me angry. Um, when someone asks me a why question, I don't say because. I don't get into the why because game. Okay? Mm. I'm Jewish. So what, is, what I, does that mean for you, the why because? Can, can you give us an example? Because people ask for a reason, and then they don't know what to do with the reasons. And just like I ask people not to ask, how are you? Because people will say, fine, even if they're suicidal. You know, I, I like the what is going on and how we're going to move on. But why is mm-hmm. a past-oriented world a problem-oriented world? I am very much of a stickler on the English language. The way you people or couples, especially, they always want something for the other person. I want you to, I want him to, I want her to. You cannot want anything for another person unless they want to. But you cannot make them want to. So I hope Mm -hmm. to be a good role model to say the more choices you have, the more you are in the present, you'll be in control. But the past is gone. 
and I cannot change the past. So I will tell you my childhood and the way I look at it, that I was fortunate enough to be neglected so I could discover my inner resources because I was very much alone as a child. And you know, today Mm -hmm. I tell you, if you're not happy alone, you're never going to be happy with anyone else. Self-love is self-care. It's not narcissistic. I really love that. I'm so fascinated by your experiences because, as you said, you, you made a connection, which I think is rare, in early life that the ways you were neglected or perhaps the ways you were not supported in your family meant that you had to support yourself, meant that you had to love yourself. And this was all happening as the world was turning and the Nazis were, be- were beginning to occupy Eastern Europe. And how, how does a little girl who one day in 1944 is arrested with her whole family and taken to an internment center, how do you begin making sense of what's going on in that moment? How do you, as a child, understand how to hold on to your truth, which is no one can make me angry. No one can make me react. I, I can live an internal life where I love myself. How, how do you hold on to that? in the midst of of war crimes. I don't think there are problems in the world. I think there are challenges. And I don't think there are crises, there are transitions. So Mm. it's very important the way you look at things and what you focus on. Because what you focus on, you're going to have more the very thing that you may want to extinguish. So when you want to perhaps lose weight and you focus on um, how you pigging out on this and that, you're not going to lose weight because none of the positive thinking leads to anything unless it's followed with a positive action. So when I work with teenagers, uh, they tell me that they like what I say, and they're going to do it. And I call them gonna people because they're always gonna, but they never are. They procrastinate, <laughs> they procrastinate, they're going to do it tomorrow, they're going to think about it tomorrow. And mm. I, so I think it's very important to think about your thinking and how you find a gift in a place like Auschwitz. The darkest places, how do you discover that sense of self beyond the body, beyond the mind? And how Mm -hmm. can we empower each other with our spiritual Mm -hmm. growth? Mm -hmm. So I think it's very important Mm -hmm. uh, to have a mantra that I always tell my patients, yes, I am, yes, I can, yes, I will. I had Mm -hmm. a patient who was in a marathon, and somehow she stopped, and she didn't think she was 
going to be able to continue. And then she ran into my office, Dr. Eager. I did it because I said, yes, I am. Yes, I can. Yes, I will. And that reminded me of when I was in the death march going from Mauthausen to Gunskirchen in April 1945. I was almost stopping myself. But when you stop, you were shot right away. And guess mm. what? When I danced for Dr. Mengele in Auschwitz, he gave me a piece of bread and I shared it with my girls. I was on the top. And those girls saw me slowing down and they came and they formed a chair with their arms and they carried me so I won't. I mm. won't die. See, love is not what you feel, it's what you do. Mm. I won't be here today. See, all we have was each other. All we had was each other then. And I am with you how to create a human family, how we can empower each other so you can be you. But there's no such thing as truth. It's my truth and your truth. <laughs> you see, it's all subjective. Yes, that's so interesting. A belief is different from faith. People mm -hmm. tell me, I believe, I believe, I believe. But I ask, what kind of life you lead? Show me. Because words can be very cheap commodities. Mm -hmm. Show me, show me, show me. Because mm -hmm. life is just one day. Just one day, that morning sunshine doesn't come back. And I am going to be 93 years so, so grateful that I can be with you and I can be a good role model to you and let you know there is hope in hopelessness. Let us really somehow um, find a way uh, to to speak out, and uh, Gandhi did it and made the whole British Empire come down to their knees without any yes. bloodshed. So I like people to speak out and hopefully prevent violence, yes. because violence breeds violence, mm -hmm. and fear begets more fear. So I'm curious, and, and I I know that you've written at length about these things, and, and so if there's anything you don't want to have to talk about, please just let me know. Um, and there are certain questions I'd like to ask because I think about some of the listeners at home who, who might not have read your book yet. But when you, when you speak about Auschwitz, you, you talk in the book about arriving. And, and on arrival, you saw Dr. Mengele. Did you have any idea of what was happening? Do you, can, can you tell anyone who hasn't read about it, what, what was the experience like that day, arriving there with your family? I didn't know who he was. Mm -hmm. he, he pointed my mother to go to the left and... 
and my sister and I to the right, and I followed my mom, and he grabbed me, and I never, ever experienced such an eye contact. It was an amazing eye contact. Um, It's like somebody looking you over completely. And I remember I wore my silk, beautiful dress that my mother uh, um, made me, and it had something that caught his eye, and he kept looking at it, and I could see he was going left and right, and it was a bow. It was a little bow here and a little bow there. And then he said, your mother is going to take a shower, and you're going to see her very soon, and grabbed me, grabbed me, and threw me bodily on the other side, which meant life. I had no idea that Auschwitz existed until I saw Arbeit Mafrei. I had no idea where we were going. Everything Mm. was very shocking. And people asked me, did you cry? I said, no. I I was void of feelings. I was numb. And... Mm. uh, I didn't know. I didn't know really what's going to happen next. But you know what? I ask people, be curious, because my curiosity was with me. I always wanted to know what's going to happen next and never, Mm -hmm. ever give up. So fight or flee doesn't work. You have to learn how to stay in a situation and do the best Mm -hmm. you can, never, ever to give up, never ever give in to hopelessness, helplessness, Mm -hmm. to find your special self that you can help your sister. We had each other. We had to form a family of inmates. Even the girls. I had my, my school teacher there. I don't know how she made it because I think she may have been in her early 40s because everyone went to the gas chamber under 14 and over 40. But you know what? She was the first one to get up. She was going to uh, exercise whatever she could. You know what? She made it. She made mm. it. So so mm. it's, it's really the way you think is what you're going to really hopefully create. Yes. And, and your mother said something to you. Yes. She gave you that advice. Yes. When you talk about being on the train with her, not knowing where you would end up, but will you tell people what she said to you? Yeah. My mom was amazingly insightful and she said, we don't know where we're going. We don't know what's going to happen. Just remember, no one can take away from you what you put in your mind. And that's exactly Mm -hmm. what happened. They mm-hmm. took everything away from me, and I had my sister, and I had my mind. Mm-hmm. And so I was 16 years old, remember, in love, in love. So there, mm-hmm. there, there is uh, a way to somehow look at my past, and ask, you know, how could she have joy and passion in life? It's because I don't want to be the prisoner of the past. Because if I would hate today, 
I would still be a prisoner. So I want to give myself a gift to let go, but not to forget or even overcome. I don't know that word overcoming, but I think there is such a thing as making peace with the past. And uh, Mm -hmm. I, I have a special place in my heart, and I call it my cherished wound. Because part of me was left in Auschwitz. But the better part is here. Mm -hmm. The bigger part is here. I have Mm -hmm. three children, five grandchildren, and seven great-grandsons. And that's my best revenge to Hitler. Wow. Mm. I think I could sit down today with Hitler and talk about his childhood and the way he was beaten by his father. If Mm. you read the book by Alice Miller, For Your Own Good, she's a brilliant psychoanalyst in Switzerland. I don't know if you're familiar with it. The drama Mm. of a gifted child, you know, she is just uh, beautiful, my idol. And and so I think it's very important for us um, to ask questions like, when did your childhood end? This is why I ask right away that some children have to take care of parents, immigrants' children. My little girl was two years old. She spoke four languages. She went to a daycare center, and she brought home a book called Chicken Little, Ducky Lucky, Goosey Lucy, Turkey Lurkey. And I looked at her because she became my teacher how to speak English. You see, that so it's very important to go through uh, the, the developments. When I was at the medical school, I studied a great deal about Piaget, who talks about the social development of us. So we mm. survivors, sometimes we had to go from here to there. So uh, we miss yes. the childhood and we grieve over not what happened, but what didn't happen. And not to not to minimize it, and that's gonna you see it in the gift. How to really not to um, not to put paprika on a chocolate because it's not gonna t- taste good, but to be able to really recognize that somehow, no matter what happened, you made it. So the question is not why yes. me, but what now. Not why me, but what now? Yes, because that's the only thing I can change Mm. is you and I right here, right now. If I'm thinking, what will I do next hour with my patient? I'm not with you 100%. So when when you are with someone and end of the day when you meet, don't ask, how are you? Because that's really just stupid question. (laughs) Just say... Uh, how was your day? Don't ask questions and don't give advice because that's what mothers do. Okay, so I don't know mm. if you have a life partner or not, but I would say, gee, it's good to see you. I miss you. You know, make an environment that there is love and and communication that you don't ask questions because questions can come across as interrogation. Interesting. How? So be Jewish and say, 
how are you? Well, how do you think I am? You know, answer a question <laughs> with a question. Yeah. When you talk about finding a way to not diminish, as you said, not diminish what you went through for any person who's been through any kind of trauma and, and yours is a singular kind, but to figure out how to move beyond it, you know, to move on, but not to forget. Um, it, it, it seems to me, it strikes me as something that requires a bit of the idea of both and, where you can hold space for both, for, for the moving on and for the joy, and for, as you say, your, your cherished wound, what, what you went through, the part of you you had to leave there. And I'm curious about how, looking back, you understand doing both, I, I read the, the Bill Gates review of The Choice, and he talked about how you had, in a sense, remained a victim long after you were rescued. And I had two reactions to that. One, I thought, who are you to say that? <laughs> I want to hear what she thinks. And then I also, I thought, oh, I'm having, I'm having a reaction to that because I don't like, I don't like the way it feels to be labeled. So I, I react when other people are labeled, but I had to make space for the reality that you yourself said that you as an adult had to go back. You went back to Auschwitz. You went back to visit that place, despite your sister saying, you're a masochist, you're crazy, why are you doing this? You knew that there was a piece of healing there for you. What was that? What, what did you need to release? How did you need to cease more of yourself remaining there that than needed to how, how did you need to to just really cut the cord to whatever victimization that felt like because i think while many people haven't been there or or experienced your particular circumstance many people are still tethered to something that harms them so i think your ability to return in order to heal can be very instructive for a lot of people. Would, would you mind telling us about that? Well, all I know that uh, in my case, I came to America penniless. I didn't have $6 to get off the boat. I didn't speak English, not a word of it. And so I wanted to be you. So I went completely underground. See, one of my idiism is that the opposite of depression is expression, because what mm -hmm. comes out of your body doesn't make you ill. But when I worked with two Vietnam veterans, I realized that I went to school and I graduated with honors and I got, you know, diplomate in that and so on, but I never did my own work. I realized mm. that I was an imposter and I had to go back to Auschwitz. I had to go back to that lion's den. I had to go to my place. I couldn't do it in the therapist's office. And those mm. were the ones that reminded me that it's time to look at that 16-year-old girl and do the grief work because you cannot heal 
what you don't feel. So, so therapy is that we revisit the places where you've been and you tell me what happened, but not about what happened. If anything happened to you when you were eight years old, I want you to use the language of that eight-year-old and tell it to me as if it would happen now. Mm. Not to go into about, 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 because that's in your head. I want you to do the grieving, the feeling, and healing. Mm -hmm. That you go through that shadow of that terrible place, but you don't run from it, you don't hide from it anymore. So I didn't do any justice to my children because I just wanted to really think that maybe the more I run away, the more it's going to go away. It does not go away. And there is a good English word called trigger. See, something triggers, and you know what? It has nothing to do with what's going on right now. With that person, it has to do with something that you haven't dealt with. Um, that mm-hmm. makes sense, right? So that's why I I like to call myself a guide. From darkness to light, from prison to freedom. And the mm-hmm. biggest biggest prison is in your own mind, and the key is in your pocket. So you don't have to go back to Auschwitz. Um I can do that in my office with the Gestalt method. They put your parent in the chair and you can beat them up. You can tie them up, especially if you were sexually abused. You were more in prison than I was in Auschwitz because I knew the enemy. It's just how you look at things. Be careful. Be careful not to generalize because... uh, I don't know how to really tell you that uh, life is difficult and people think that there is some kind of a guarantee, especially in marriage. There is no guarantee. There is probability mm-hmm. that you, if you examine yourself and see how can you be the loving life partner to someone rather than blame because while you blame, you're still a child. Children blame. People mm. point the finger at, you did that and you made me angry. When you hear you, I know somebody's going to dump on you. That's what I tell young people in school. The bully is going to say, you are stupid and you that. And you take a deep breath and say, the more he talks or she talks, the more relaxed I become. You take the negative stimuli, you turn it into positive. No, I don't like to be locked up. Of course not. I still have a choice to really regroup and re-decide whether I'm going to hold on to something that keeps me in that prison, blaming, blaming, blaming. I can say, well, I have a gratitude for being able to read more, um, to be closer to the children, and uh, to be able to write my third book with my daughter on recipes. So we're Mm -hmm. into the Hungarian recipes right now. And you see, uh, 
you can complain as much as you want to, but how is it really getting you where? So I think it's very important for you to love yourself and uh, also ask yourself, would you like to be married to me? Because I I ask many <laughs> times people that you want a life partner who is your equal. Mm. Sometimes, you know, men pick up women, and it reminds me of Don Quixote, who goes to the whorehouse, and you know what? He wants to help the women in stress, but the one who is in stress is him. Mm. Because some people want to rescue all the time. They pick, you know, it's wonderful to my fair lady. That is, oh my goodness, that's a brilliant way to recognize, you know, that he is really a control freak. He cannot Mm -hmm. be with his own kind. He has to pick up that little wave. But you know what we learn, once she graduates, she leaves. Mm -hmm. And then he has to pick up, rather than being with their equal. So this is the way I think. I always go back to Shakespeare, Tolstoy, Chekhov, and that uh, William uh, Tennessee Williams is ma- marvelous. If you want mm-hmm. to know about Oedipus Complex, uh, the Catonacht yes. Rue. you know there is so much to read and learn. I I never will stop. Mm. One of the things I think I adore most about you, Edie, is your insatiable curiosity. And you talk about having that curiosity as a young girl, holding that curiosity and letting it motivate you and and exploring it in the sort of freedom of your dreams at night when you were in the camps. And you you talk about this curiosity now, you know, with with your daughter writing a book of recipes and, and, of, and of the films and the plays and the study and the psychology that, that you pour yourself into. I'm curious about, I'm curious about many things about you and your curiosity, but I, I would love to know about the life that began it's making when you came here, because I, I know that you and Magda by the grace of all things, survived Auschwitz. I know there were only six dozen of you who did, which is such a stark reality when you think of the thousands and thousands and thousands of people, who, tens of thousands of people who went there. But you, you mentioned coming here to America, not speaking any English at the time. You, you guys, as a family, you settled in Texas. How how did you make that decision? How did you decide to come here? Why did you go to Texas? How did you begin this new path that led you to all of this study and practice? What what did that time in your life look like? I think the curiosity that I practiced, even as a child, I always wanted to know what's going to happen next. Keeps mm-hmm. me today the same way. I never thought that my precious grandson is going to be uh, uh, truly my 
best thing in the in my life, you know. Uh, his father is Quaker, and uh, and and his grandmother um, was very different from me. And one morning, we had breakfast, and I am Jewish, right? I bring all the food, all the food, 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 yeah. and uh, she brings a book. She does so very different ways. And so he looked at both of us and said, I've never seen two people as different as you are. <laughs> and I, I mean, that little precious kid is, 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 is amazing. But I remember that I was consulting in Germany and I was in Stuttgart. And for every Christmas, I bought my grandson a train. Do you know how much a train cost? Like a thousand dollars each. And that was many, many years ago. Many, many years ago. I'm talking 30 years ago. So we were sitting after Christmas breakfast and precious Jordan is complaining to me that he didn't get something, something. And, uh, and so I, uh, I was practicing compassionate listening. But her grandma said, aren't you ashamed of yourself? People are starving now. I want you to take your toys and give it to the homeless. And you see, so first of all, I tell you that I was invited by the medical school, um, Dr. Zizok, uh, who is uh, a wonderful psychiatrist heading um, the newcomers who are coming. And, and the, he asked me to come and talk. And I said, you know, when you are in medical school, you either learn to medicate or cut it out. But compassionate listening and empathy is really not in your curriculum. So they're asking me, how can we be more compassionate? Mm. That if you give me a problem, I don't give you the solution. We explore all the options. On the one hand, see, I'm a Libra. I look at both sides of everything. On the one hand, on the other hand, just like Fiddler on the Roof. Remember? He loves him. He's only a tailor, you know, so on. So I always look at both sides of everything, but nothing gives me more joy that when I will die, I will be so happy really, that I was able to give to the world the me, mm. the me, the me, the genuine me, mm. because I'm off stage the same way that I'm on stage. I, My father told me that I'm going to be the best-dressed girl in town because I had a beautiful body, and I do dress well. I do dress well, and I want to say, Papa, Watch me, watch me, watch me. You see, I, I, I wear nice clothes, and that's what I tell single women. If you go buy groceries, look like a million-dollar baby. You never know who's going to stand next to you. And just see, the tomatoes are very nice today. And just open up something. You know, I yeah. like women who are assertive but not aggressive. 
I'm curious about that, that, that idea. You never know when you might meet your person, your late husband, Bella. Can you tell us about that? Was he, <laughs> were you dressed up when you met him? Oh, uh, he was a partisan. He was a partisan. Mm-hmm. And I met him at the re- rehabilitation center where he was with a girlfriend, kissing, kissing, kissing. But someone oh. told me that he's in a TB hospital. And and I, I was sent there because they thought I may have TB. So the mm-hmm. story is that I went to him as he was kissing the girl and asked him, would you be so kind and help me go to the hospital tomorrow? And he completely ignored me. And he said, just meet me at the train. So at the train, <sighs> he was uh, still, you know, not talking to me much. But when we got off the plane, uh, the train, he asked me the typical question we all asked, what did you do before the war? And I got so mm. pissed. And I t- looked at him and I said, I was a student of ballet. And he said, that reminds me of a joke. Hungarians are very cynical. You want to hear the joke? The joke is about the bird, Mm -hmm. and the bird is about to die. But there comes uh, a cow and uh, makes uh, poops on on the bird, and the bird says, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm dancing, I'm dancing. And then came uh, uh, a truck and finished uh, the bird, and he said then, you know, uh, I didn't understand what he was saying, uh, but when the, the horse came and looked at the bird, said, if you have shit on your head, don't dance. And I got so I did a split right in front of him. And that's how I met him. Wow. See, and then he was very impressed with me because remember my mother told me I have brains. I knew how to study Greek and I knew all the Greek gods and goddesses. And he was very impressed with my intellect. But I, I took off after a month or so. I didn't have TB. I had no mm. all kinds of, I had typhoid fever. I had many, many things going on. But we were doing something people don't do today. We were writing letters to each other. Uh, so by the time you left the TB hospital, your feelings about him had changed. And you, and you began writing letters? For how long? I, I, I remember, uh, and even today people ask me, Uh, Did you love your husband? I really didn't know anything after I was liberated because I didn't know how to write. I didn't write. uh, I remember practicing the capital G, you know. I didn't know how to go to the bathroom. You know, it was amazing what it took, but that someone even looked at me. So when mm-hmm. people ask, did you love Bela? And I said, I was very skinny. I was very lonely. 
And most of all, I was very hungry. And he bought me Hungarian salami and Swiss cheese. And that did it. <laughs> you see? So yeah. that's why we, we, we want to really go back and find out. People said, well, you divorced him and you went back. I said, no, I didn't go back. I, I was a woman to a man. Mm. When I married him, I was a child, mm. skinny and hungry. And we had a relationship that was sometimes the parent to the child or the child to the parent that I had to grow up myself because when I divorced him, it had nothing to do with him. It was me. I was hungry. I, th I thought maybe that I, I just have to be alone to explore the world. But then I decided that it wasn't him. And that's why it's important people get divorced too soon. And the children mm. pick up the tab. Mm. So when you so, have children, come to me or someone like me and see before you go to the lawyer and, right. uh, and see whether it's possible for you take responsibility because there is no freedom without responsibility. It's anarchy. There is no freedom without responsibility. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. So what what prompted the, because you talk about splitting and then going back, what was the reconciliation when, when you realized that you had growing up to do, what did it then look like to, to decide to build a family? Well, you know, um, we had a very difficult life in America. Mm -hmm. And uh, one day my supervisor told me, Edie, you got to get a doctorate. And I said, it's impossible to get a doctorate. I'll be 50. And he said, you'll be 50 anyway. And that's the best thing I can tell anybody. Don't worry about the age. So wow. I went home and I told my husband, I want to get a doctorate. And he said, I don't want to be introduced as Mr. and Doctor. Ooh. Yeah, just like that. But you see, I teach women to be assertive. Mm. You don't ask permission from your husband. You make a statement. But you know mm. what happened once I got the doctorate? He was carrying me around like Mr. Higgins. By God, she's got it, you know? And so <laughs> don't, don't, don't really uh, let anybody outside of you influence you to the point that you really are mm. not well connected with yourself. So yes. it's not too late to go to become a lawyer. It's not too late to become an actress. There are stars, and you are a star, you see? So your parents must be very proud of you, right? But you see, unconditional love, that they love you just the way you are, not mm -hmm. what you do, 
You don't have to perform in order to be loved because that's not love at all. That's manipulation that parents do. A lot of the time, you know, I'll be loving you when you bring home a good report card or I love you if you cut your hair, I love you if you shave, uh, things like that. Mm. Uh, I No, that's not love at all. Um, mm. I love you just because of you. There'll never mm. be another you. And I like to celebrate every moment in my 90s. Every moment is precious. Yeah. Every yeah. moment is precious. Yeah. Obviously, you wound up with a doctorate. How did your desire to go to school and to study psychology and and the human mind, how did that begin? It began in Hungary. Um, There were very famous psychiatrists there. I actually was studying uh, the interpretation of dreams by Freud when I was Mm. 14 years old. I had my own book club. Yes, very erudite, very, very... Um, and then I had a boyfriend, and he also was the same way, and we worked together. It was a very different uh, time that education was really the number one priority. And uh, today I also tell young people in America, the more pieces of paper you pick up, the more doors open up for you. So please stay mm. in school become emotionally and financially independent, and then talk about marriage. Mm. So your book club, how, how did you start that, and, and who was in it with you? We had a big club, a book club, uh, um, and uh, people could join in and with responsibility, and we decided mm. what we're going to read. And what we read usually were... Uh, the Greek uh, philosophers, and um, we were into the Greek, uh, the the originals, the originals. Um, The philosopher Epictetus um, told us, it's not what happens makes you feel the way you feel, it's the way you view it. And the whole cognitive psychology is based on Epictetus. The way you think, mm. the way you create that thinking is going to create your whole life and your mostly your uh, behavior. So your thinking is very important to really think about. Think about your thinking. That makes a lot of sense because the way you think can change your whole body chemistry. And that Mm -hmm. is really science. That it's awful, it's terrible, I'm always going to be, I'm never going to be, and those are absolutistic words. I'm always going to be ugly and I'm never going to find a man. Uh, Sure enough, you will always find what you look for. So I think change is synonymous with growth, give birth to the you, to the you. And then what you practice, you're going to become better at it. If you practice fear, you have more fear. But I've never seen fear and love coexisting. 
Have you found love coming out of fear? No. So there is fear, there is a lot of pain inside every one of us. And this is a good time to look at it. This is the time when we are given this time when we cannot have the dinner parties anymore. But you can have a dinner party in your backyard and you put a little tables and 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 you can put yeah you can do that too, um, but mm-hmm. but it's what you. By the way, don't say yes, but say yes and yes and furthermore, because sometimes we mothers say yes, you are very beautiful, but I didn't tell <coughs> you that I really think your face is full of pimples, and so when we say but we actually uh, not realizing that anything that you said before the but is no longer there. Because when I tell you you're a pretty girl, but you're fat, what you're going to think of? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay? So you have, you, you have I... to be very careful when you say anything to anyone at any time and ask yourself, is it really... Mm-hmm important and is it kind i i want people to communicate in a way that you learn how to truly compassionately listen and even repeat what you're hearing sometimes people react and not respond but i learned to do that when i took care of a boy who was part of the white supremacy group of of David Koresh in Texas. It's way before your time. No, I've, I've read about it. What, how did you connect with that person? A judge sent him to me. Wow. A judge sent Was him it... to me, and he told me, he told me that America has to be white again. Now, if I would have reacted, I would have grabbed that boy. I would have dragged him in a corner. Remember, I'm a gymnast. I have, I have muscles. I would have pushed him down. I would have stepped on him. Mm-hmm. And I would have said, who do you think you're talking to? I saw my mother going to the gas chamber. But I think even today that people don't come to me, they're sent to me. And the most obnoxious person is your best teacher. So what was it like working with him, w- working with someone who said those horrible things to you? How did I, you I, I looked at him as I looked at the Nazis with pity, with pity that he gave up his freedom. And then when I did that, I changed the whole atmosphere in my place. And guess what I said? Please tell me more. Because love is time, T-I-M-E, time. Mm. When you said he gave up his freedom, you said you looked at that white supremacist with pity because he gave up his freedom. What do you mean by that? That you become a prostitute, and the definition of a prostitute, you can be bought. So he went and he gave up his freedom to think Mm -hmm. for himself, to have a voice of himself. He was Mm -hmm. 14 years old. His parents threw him out. You know, I worked with children of the Nazis 
who threw their children out of the house when they questioned the parents. We don't talk enough about that. Wow. Yeah, it's very, very important um, to really look how we are going from generation to generation. Mm -hmm. And it's very important to revisit those places, but don't get stuck in there. Well, and I'm curious what you think, because if you could draw the line between this this particular boy, this white supremacist who was sent to you, and and the fact that he gave up his freedom of thought, that that he fell prey to an ideology which we know to be so toxic and so wrong, the hatred of each other is wrong. How do you look at what's happening today, the resurgence of a neo-Nazi movement, the resurgence of white supremacy, the, the anger that these people feel when black and brown people and women and, and, and people who've been subjugated say, we just want equality. How, how do you observe that coming back around now? Well... You know, Akman Dijidad said that the Holocaust didn't exist. And I very much like people to read Plato, who tells us that you have to think of a lie, and then you keep Mm. repeating, repeating, until people believe it. Mm. Our biggest enemy is ignorance. You want to question authority. Our biggest enemy is ignorance. Yes. 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 Question authority rather than blindly adhere to authority because some people doesn't have any clothes on, doesn't even wear shorts, you know. And to really find a way that we can open up communications, that's the only way we're going to have ever peace to be able Mm. to sit on a floor. And I did that with the children of the Nazis. And I did that in Hungary. And I did that, and I was there with Carl Rogers. And I've been very committed myself because when I came to America in 1949, I worked in Baltimore and I worked in a sweatshop. I got seven cents to cut off threads of boxer shorts, but when I went to the bathroom, one of them said colored, and I was in total shock after Nazi Mm. Germany and communist Russia. Look what I find, what is called democracy. No. Wow. And so I joined the NAACP. I got together with the women of color. I marched with Martin Luther King. I got a hug from him. I am a very, very, very (laughs) delightfully happy person to unite people and how we can exchange philosophies and how we can learn Mm -hmm. from each other. But the Mm -hmm. most obnoxious person is your best teacher. Find the Hitler in you and find the love and the Mother Teresa and the, the beauty and, uh, you know, the rabbis that I uh, speak to the Chabad um, 
I don't know if you're familiar with those people, but they're all over the world. And I have a son who is disabled, and and the work that they do is amazing. They take anyone. It doesn't matter. You don't have to be anything, any time, any, any religion, nothing. And, you know, I think if we could all be... Um, sisters and brothers and listen mm. to one another and get rid of the us and them mentality. I felt sorry for the guards in Auschwitz that they were wearing a uniform and they would throw people in the ovens without even guessing them. How could anyone do that? Children were not born with that. We learn it. Mm. But what you learn, you can unlearn. And you cannot let go of anything unless you replace it with something else. So love yes. conquers all. You mm. know, my, my definition of love is the ability to let go. I was going to pick up something and let go. <laughs> let go. Let go of the concentration camp in your mind. And mm. you, you, got, you got the answer. And you, you are that person. You are that angel. You are that uh, beautiful, precious, one-of-a-kind diamond that that is doing that. You're a little butterfly. I have two butterfly chairs here, and I like the idea of metamorphosis. And then you shed the chrysalis so you can fly freely like a butterfly. But you know what? The butterfly doesn't fly right away. They practice. They rehearse, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Yeah, you practice. You don't just go and perform, right? You practice. You rehearse. Mm. That's beautiful. And love is time. So if you could have some kind of a place in every city that people could just go in and somebody would just say nothing so they can mm-hmm. just get things out that vomit that they've been carrying, we would mm-hmm. have hopefully less, less, less Dr. Death. Edie, are there, are there teachers who you would recommend people look to now, you know, books to read? You mentioned Dr. King. I think his writing is more important now than ever. Obviously, your book, is incredibly important for people to to pick up all of your books, for people to learn, to hear your stories, what you went through, to to be reminded of of what we're supposed to do for each other, which is love each other and and give each other time, as you said. Are are there any other um, teachers whose whose writing you would recommend people look to in a time? You know, I I was part of the conspiracy of silence. I didn't say anything about me being in Auschwitz for at least 20 years until someone handed me a book by Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. Mm. My book is the female voice of Viktor Frankl because without him, I wouldn't have been able to be where I am today. So I... I read that book and I wanted to write 10 more pages for everyone because somebody finally had words because I didn't want people to feel sorry for me 
I felt like a weirdo as it was. So I went, you know, underground. But I I I wrote an article that was published and someone sent it to Viktor Frankl in Vienna. So one day wow. I received a letter that Viktor Frankl is inviting me to join him in San Diego at the International University. And that became really, truly, the whole new chapter in my life that led to the choice. Because mm. Viktor Frankl was uh, a medical doctor when he was mm -hmm. in Auschwitz, and I was a 16-year-old girl. So we, we were using the same skills. He said that he would close his eyes when he was tortured, and he imagined that he's going to lecture at the Viennese um, place, uh, lecture place about the psychology of the concentration camp. And I said, that's really wonderful to hear because I too closed my eyes when I danced for Dr. Mengele and I pretended that the music was Tchaikovsky and I was dancing the Romeo and Juliet. So mm. you see, when I was, went to Hungary with Philip Zimbardo, that's the first place I went. But Philip Zimbardo kept asking me, you got to write a book, write about a book. And I would say, I have nothing to say, nothing to say. And then he said, you know what? The survivors mm -hmm. who are famous are all men. We need a female voice. So I am the female voice of Viktor Frankl. I love that. I love that. One of my favorite things that you've said about happiness, and you wrote, I've learned not to look for happiness because that's external. You were born with love and you were born with joy. That's inside. It's always there. Do you feel like your work, whether with yourself through your life or with your patients, is to remind people how to uncover that joy how to how to let go of everything but the joy and and really live from that place you know auschwitz was a place not for recovery but discovery mm. i discovered traits about me that i never thought was possible it was a place to discover my inner resources mm. and really, truly be congruent, to be able to, to see how my head is thinking one thing, my heart is feeling another. You cannot heal, as I told you. That's why I think the work I do is important that finally can be free at last that I can give birth to the me. Not mommy's little uh, daughter or daddy's little confidant. Or uh, No, it's me, the real me, a whole person, W-H-O-L-E. And to find that little girl inside you and tell her, tell her because she's crying, and tell her I'm here. I grew up, I'm the healthy adult. Mm -hmm. and see how you can really be a good parent to you. One, you've said so many things that I love, but one of my favorites is that suffering is universal, victimhood is optional. So if we, to 
to your point, learn how to release ourselves from it, how to be with ourselves, everything changes, right? Yeah, because when I ask you, who are you? If people ask me, when I came to America, who are you? And I would say, who do you want me to be? Uh, you know, you become a kind of a, a schizophrenic because you just want to fit in. You, mm. uh, and uh, thank God, today I know I'm totally connected. I, yes. I celebrate every moment. Mm. And I'm so grateful for you to carry, carry the responsibility mm. to others so we can finally have mm-hmm. hold hand in hand, holding each yes. other and empowering each other with our differences. That's my dream. Well, don't stop dreaming, but don't confuse your romanticism with realism. As as a fan and an admirer, I'm just so grateful and I and I really feel like we're all so lucky that you chose to lean into your curiosity and to do the work and to amass degrees and a doctorate and a body of incredible work as a as a clinician and an advisor and and that you have given the world the opportunity to learn with you it's it's really such a gift and i i can't tell you how much i appreciate you taking the time today to have this conversation and i'm so excited for the new book and just thank you so much edie Thank you, honey. I have faith in you. And I have faith that uh, there is hope and love. And love can conquer all. Mm. So would you like to be married to you? Oh, um, at this point? Yeah, I would. Good. So then put it out there and... See, uh, you know, I like young women now. They're much better than, you know, in my in my generation. Um, there was a lot of phoniness. And today I like the young women much better, uh, much more honest. And, uh, and uh, I, I like the whole modern marriage that they do everything together. They go to work every morning. They carry everything. They change the diapers. They drive the cars. They uh, they, they don't get into this business of uh, mm. of uh, male and female. Whatever has to be done. You see a piece of meat when you come home. You do something with it rather than waiting until someone else comes home. You see, don't wait for anybody to come and uh, you know. The the prince that doesn't come to Cinderella is uh, I don't think I don't think these stories do justice to women because there are no princes, not even pseudo princes. <laughs> I think there are people with foot fetish who want to go to the kitchen and find Cinderella, but <laughs> but uh, anyway, I like the idea of the pioneer woman who worked Mm -hmm. alongside of her husband Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You got to look at that, that the women didn't uh, walk behind the husband. They went to the field together. They work, and that's what my grandson is doing, uh, picking up the twins and and uh, and uh, feeding one in one hand and one in the other. I mean, it's amazing. And he's also a brilliant uh, professional. So and so is his wife, and they work together and they make things happen, and then they delegate uh, to people. They hire people. It's called you know babysitters who are trained, and uh, so I like I like the modern modern thinking, but it actually really goes back to the pioneer woman that I really admired in America. I love that. I think the women became, unfortunately, financially and emotionally, depending on a man. And I find that in a military, the lower the rank, the more the women stay home. They go to breakfast, to McDonald's, and they spend money on fat stuff. And and they expect the husband to come home and take care of them. So... I'm working very hard to see how especially children need one thing is a happy marriage because children Mm -hmm. don't do what we say, they do what they see. Mm. They see everything. Yeah. All right, so we had a good time together. Yes. I love you. Thank you so much. Take care. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Carillion Anatomy. 